0: This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, episode 123, News Roundup, The Secure Act Passes, A Billionaire's Biggest Policy, and a Wall Street Journal Warning.
1: Traditional financial planning is no longer working. And in the new normal economy, your host, Certified Financial Planner Mark Willis, invites you to join us as we engage the new and improved steps for establishing financial sanity. Be curious, be stable, be sane. This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future.
0: Just when you thought Christmas was over, a new episode of Not Your Average Financial podcast. Glad you're with me today. And uh, I also want to give you a special surprise. There's a new present waiting for you from none other than your congressman or woman. So we've got, don't you love it when Congress sends you a Christmas present? Uh, what? What? Wait a minute. You, you haven't sent them a thank you card yet. Uh, a, all joking aside. You may not know it, but last Christmas, just a few weeks ago, you got an extra present under the tree. It was with the president's signature on it, actually. Uh, It was the passage of the SECURE Act. It's now a part of your retirement future, whether you realize it or not, whether you like it or not. And so I wanted to spend a little bit of time on this News Roundup episode, which we do every so often, once a year or so, um, with just discussion with you about how this SECURE Act passes. One of the main themes of the SECURE Act, by the way, the SECURE Act stands for setting every community up for retirement enhancement, otherwise known as SECURE. Uh, I like to say it might also stand for somebody employed by Congress undoubtedly retitles everything. Secure, get it? Uh, So they're broadening access to retirement savings programs uh, through work programs, essentially. So after months of collecting dust in the Senate, Eventually, the SECURE Act, which is the most significant, I would say the most significant retirement savings reform legislation since 2006, with the Pension Protection Act, um, was passed over, over the spending bill of the holidays. It offers some small business tax incentives to set up automatic enrollment in retirement plans for workers, Uh, It also allows uh, multiple plans uh, for small businesses where they can team up and sort of band together with other companies to offer retirement accounts to their employees in the first place. And the bill also eliminates some maximum age caps for contributions to traditional retirement accounts. Um, So I don't know if you knew this, but you couldn't contribute to certain retirement accounts after a particular age. That is now done away with. So the SECURE Act Uh, buried deep into it, section 204 gives a fiduciary safe harbor for 401k sponsors who want to include annuities among offerings to plan participants. Now, what does that mean in plain English? Well, first of all, I wonder what Dave Ramsey and other annuity haters would have to say uh, now that more Americans are going to have access to guaranteed lifetime income in retirement. And that's apparently a good thing, (laughs) in my book anyway. Uh, Most many part-time workers anyway, will be eligible to participate in an employer retirement plan under the SECURE Act. So lots of big changes, as you can see. The SECURE Act is also going to push back the age when retirement plan participants need to take required minimum distributions. We just had an episode on this uh, a week or two ago. As of this recording, it came out on December 30th. So they're pushing it back from 70 and a half to 72 years old. Now, one of the most important sections in the new law would be a dramatic reduction in something called the stretch IRA, the stretch IRA. There's this provision in the IRA rules, which was a really great planning tool for stretching the tax deferral of IRAs over the course of a lifetime. The rule now, as of 2020, as of this recording January, the rule has been changed and I really want to talk about what that means for you. So before the Secure Act, beneficiaries who did not who who did not inherit their accounts from a spouse or, you know, husband wife were in most cases allowed to withdraw that IRA money over the span of their the, the beneficiary's lifetime, which could be just a few years or a few decades. The amount of the distribution would be calculated on a couple of things including their uh, life expectancy of the beneficiary. What does this mean? Again, if you're a 50-year-old child of a, a parent who passes away and leaves you an IRA of a quarter million dollars or half a million dollars, let's say, and you get an IRA as a part of the estate, you would have over your life expectancy from 50 to 89 or whatever your life expectancy is to spend that money down on a required basis by the government. This new rule requires that you as that beneficiary withdraw all those assets, take it all out, drain that inherited IRA within not your lifetime, but just 10 years. So back to that episode when just two weeks ago, we talked about the required minimum distributions. What does that do when you're forced to take that money out over 10 years? The entire balance has to be distributed after the 10th year. Uh, So you could wait 10 years and then take it all out in the 10th year but that would really create some problems with your taxes, especially if you're in your 40s and 50s. Most of the time, people whose parents pass away, you're gonna be in that age and that stage in life where you're earning more than ever before. So limiting that time frame to take the money out of the tax-deferred status of an IRA will absolutely boost the tax burden that this distribution will cause, okay? So if you inherit a 401k, an IRA or other retirement account from anybody other than your own spouse. You're gonna be affected by this secure act. So again, starting back in January 1st, 2020, now the required minimum distribution on this is gonna be just 10 years. So you'll need to adjust how much you withdraw as compared to the previous rules. So this is gonna increase the number of taxable distributions. So for example, guys, let's say you're 55 years old, you inherit an IRA from your parents of $250,000. Let's assume that it gives you a 5% return um, and you're forced to take that RMD out as long as you have the IRA. Before the SECURE Act, you could take that income out over your lifetime. That would be 8,400 bucks a year in year one, and that would slowly grow to $13,000 by year 10, and you know, each year you'd pay taxes on those dollars, but they're relatively small, You know, 8,000, 13, proportionally anyway, that's a smaller number. And in year 11, you'd still have $106,000 in your IRA protected and not yet exposed to the air of taxation. So you can see the numbers uh, in this spreadsheet, which we'll include in our show notes, uh, it's episode 129, where we talk about the SECURE Act um, just a few weeks ago. So go back to episode 129 to see that. Now that the SECURE Act is passed, the government wants that IRA gone in just 10 years. So you'd have to take and pay taxes on, not eight grand in the first year, but $25,000 in year one. That's much higher than $8,000. And that's the yearly taxable income, which would keep increasing over 10 years, okay? So same $250,000, same, 55 year old, same 5% return, but now you're taking that money out at 25 grand, 28 grand, 30 grand. And by the 10th year, the income taxable income would have increased to $38,000 and your IRA would have been totally spent after the 10th year. So that difference in more income is over $200,000 over 10 years of additional taxable money. Now, When are your parents most likely gonna pass away and leave that IRA to you? It's when you're in your 50s that they might be passing away. When you're most likely gonna be earning your highest income? You guessed it, it's gonna be at the exact same time. That means you'll be in your highest tax bracket of your lifetime, you'll be receiving the income you don't want, and you'll be paying taxes that you would not have otherwise needed to pay under the previous law. Think of all the years your parents saved to leave that gift for you in that IRA, only to have it go to the government. So according to CNBC, the government will raise an additional $15 billion of revenue that they would not have otherwise received because of this new law, because Americans will now more quickly have to empty their inherited accounts. So what can you do here? Well, if your parents have a traditional tax-deferred IRA, consider moving it to a Roth IRA. We can help you do that. If you want, you can reach out to me. Call us at 1-800-962-9141 or you can go to notyouraveragefinancialpodcast.com and click on request a meeting, and we can sit down and talk about it before it becomes a burden for you. Right now, taxes are as low as they've ever been in recent memory, as long as I've been alive anyway, but only for another five years. I don't know if you realize that, but that is still the tax law. After five years from now, we all get a tax raise. That's the law. So there is one nice piece, one more nice piece about the SECURE Act, and then we'll move on to some other news Right now you can take $10,000 out of a 529 account to pay for student loan debt. So that's under the new law as well. And 529 plans have generally been a college savings account for someone looking to go to college in the future. What was passed in this law is that now you can take $10,000 out of your 529 account to pay for a a college education you had in the past, which is kind of cool, I think. One of my most ongoing and biggest complaints with traditional college savings plans like 529s is that they lock your money up and you don't have access to it for things you need in life. So yeah, again, according to CNBC, now that is possible. You can now approve uh, for distributions from your 529 plans and spend it on paying down a massive student loan debt. If the average American with a 529 balance is invested in target date funds, think about this. Generally speaking, if you have a 529 plan, that is going to be invested in conservative to aggressive target date funds. And it automatically rebalances to your kids' uh, graduation of high school so that the money is there when it's time to go to school. That's kind of the general um, philosophy of 529 plans. The average return of target date funds is about three and a half percent. Now that's according to Dalbar's third-party research. Now, if your student loan, if you after you get through college, if you have a student loan, those student loans on average are 6% currently, at, as, the, as of now, the current national average. So if you're earning 3% in the 529, and you have money left over in that 529 after you graduate school, and you have 6% owed to the student loan company, you're in a net negative situation. So it's even worse when you remember that your student loan payments are being paid with after-tax dollars, whereas 3.5% you're getting in your 529 would be taxable if you don't use it for education. So I'm really happy to hear that the government has, quote, graciously given us one more way to get our money out of college savings accounts before we turn 60 years old. You can even reapply a 529 to another child. So let's say you had a 529 for Jimmy, but the older sister Susie, um, had some student loan debt. You can reassign that 529 plan to pay for her college debt. You could even take the 529 plan for Jimmy and apply it to Johnny, who's still in preschool, and send it to you know help help Johnny get through preschool if you needed to. So very flexible there. I like that. For the 1.5 trillion dollar student loan problem in this country, I'm not sure that $10,000 out of your 529 to pay off that debt will really solve the nation's problem with student loans. But think about how much sooner you could be student loan debt-free with this new allowance in the law. I've already had some of our clients calling me, say they'd like to take a distribution from their 529s, pay their taxes on any of that if they need to, while they're in a lower bracket, or if they can do it within the $10,000 limit, there is no taxes due, and then put that money into a bank on yourself policy and immediately take a loan against the policy to pay off their student loan debt. That, to me, this is even better than being debt-free since you're able to continue to get growth on your policy even as you paid off your student loans. You've got your debts paid off and you're the banker. So that's the SECURE Act. Obviously, there'll be more implications of that as we go through the year. But let's turn the page now to another newsworthy article I wanted to bring up to you. This one really caught my attention. I read an article in Forbes that some unnamed Silicon Valley billionaire has set the new Guinness world record for most valuable life insurance policy. But this person, whoever he or she is, worth $201 million um, purchased the policy. So the policy itself was $201 million. The billionaire who bought it uh, had a deal with 19 different life insurance companies And the billionaire will be paying annual premiums in the low million dollar per year payments. Wow, so for him or her, that's awesome. And the policy more than doubles the previous record, by the way, by Peter Rosengard from the United Kingdom, whose insurance on a life of a U.S. entertainment industry figure sold for $100 million. So, you know, it was somebody in Hollywood, now it's somebody in Silicon Valley, they've doubled the most valuable life insurance policy in the world. Who bought this policy, right? Who's the mysterious uh, billionaire? So it's hard to know because, again, life insurance is a private contract. And I love that. I love that we can't find out, you know, that that who owns what, right? It's a private asset for this individual and good for them. You know, but there is a California-based advisory firm who sold the record-breaking policy, um, said that they're not legally permitted to disclose the name of the billionaire buyer but said it was a well-known Californian tech investor. So if I was just gonna posit a wild guess, I mean, why not, right? It's our podcast, let's do it. So let's start with the random number. That's a fairly random number to have a $201 million policy. Why not 200 or 210? You know, that seemingly arbitrary $201 million is coincidentally the same amount Elon Musk's Solar City IPO filed for just a few years ago. So could it be that Mr. Elon is the latest famous person to join the bank on yourself revolution? Who knows, right? I hope he didn't get a smoker rating after getting on Joe Rogan's podcast. <laughs> anyway, why would someone get a policy that big? Why would a billionaire think it made sense to put millions of dollars every single year into a life insurance policy when he or she could you know, buy anything else, right? I believe there's lots of reasons. And we talk a lot about those reasons on this podcast. For example, guaranteed growth on your cash, liquid access to your money, the tax advantages, uh, and even tax-free income out of the policy. It's very rare for billionaires to have all of those things wrapped up in one asset. All those reasons are perfect reasons enough. But there is another reason, especially in California. There are state death taxes, estate taxes that are exceptionally high. If you're net worth and properties are leveraged, then those loans would be called immediately and need to be paid off. So for example, if you pass away with a large estate and you have an estate tax, when you pass away to hedge yourself against having to liquidate all that real estate, let's say, or sell all your business assets, your beneficiaries can receive all of your assets and businesses and real estate. If your life insurance there that you left them would be enough to wipe out any of the estate taxes due, or any of the debts owed on your real estate. So I think that's some really important uh, rationales, I should say, just thinking into the billionaire's mind. Uh, But it's not just California, right? As of 2020, January, six states have an inheritance tax, 12 states plus uh, District of Columbia levy an estate tax. And on top of all that, there's, of course, the federal estate tax. Now, the federal government has this estate tax at a very high limit. It's $11 million per person on your estate before taxes kick in. But most people I talk to, most experts in the uh, tax arena, think that the estate tax won't always stay that high. Uh, we're in a special environment right now. And it doesn't matter what the estate tax is today. It only matters what the estate tax is when you need it, when you've croaked, when you pass away, right? Right. So many Americans are now taking precautions to keep the government from taking their estate when they pass away. So for Mr. Elon Musk or whoever you may be, congratulations on your new policy. And I expect to see you as our next guest for an upcoming episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast. Okay, very good. So that is the second article I wanted to uh, bring up with you. The third is a recent Wall Street Journal article. It really just came out. It's still hot off the presses. Um, and the Wall Street Journal recently reported on one of the life insurance industry's hottest products, the indexed universal life product. In the first nine months of 2019, the most recent year, it was over a quarter of all life insurance sales measured by premium. That's up from 20% in 2014 and just 4% in 2008. That's according to some LIMRA research that they did. The product, the indexed universal life products appeal is that it promises an interest rate on formulas, you know, tied to the stock market indexes like the S&P 500, as well as, you know, protecting you when the market tanks. So that's the, the pitch that you can get a portion of the market's upside without losing money when the market tanks. Some newer indexed universal life policies even use something called a multiplier, that promises even higher annual interest rates. And that multiplier, which is kind of uh, attached to the policy, obviously would come with a higher cost to the policyholder. So as of this recording, 11 years into the bull market that we're in, in this stock market, policies, indexed universal life policies, are benefiting from all these huge market gains, right? So if you have an IUL and you bought it 10, 11 years ago, you're rocking and rolling. And the Wall Street Journal writer, Leslie Schism, warns that if the market goes down or if it has a decade of flattened returns, which some, some uh, economists are predicting, all some buyers may be left with at that point is an unaffordable insurance bill. And that's been my experience working with clients that have these indexed universal life policies and they're starting to age and they're starting to see those costs increase. So regulators of the industry are now taking notice. You know, a standard setting organization for state insurance departments have aimed to put some new rules in place by this year, mid-year, this summer, 2020, to rein in some overly rosy projections to these new multiplier features. It's this new multiplier feature on Index Universe universal life that's causing a lot of interest, people buying it, maybe without realizing what it is. And the, the regulation would restrict the insurance companies from showing super rosy projections, better than, you know, average illustrated results with this multiplier attached. So this isn't the first time that regulators have tightened the rules on these hot selling IULs, In 2015, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners limited interest rates that could be shown on a spreadsheet to sell one of these IUL policies uh, to just 6% of what the S&P could do. So some regulators, I think, and advisors too, myself included, fear that the indexed universal life will basically be a repeat of what a lot of consumers experienced back in the 80s with a policy known as basic universal life they were super hot. Basic universal life was super hot in the 80s when interest rates in the United States were tapping out at double digits. Many of you guys might even remember when mortgages were 12, 13, 15% for a mortgage, if you can even imagine that. So since then, however, we've seen interest rates drop to historic lows. I mean, right now, as of this recording, you can get a mortgage for three and a half, four and a half percent. That means your interest in your basic universal life policy would have dropped dramatically. It slows the growth in the basic universal life policy when you have an interest-sensitive policy. So universal life policies, which were sold back in the 80s, showed these super promising projections, just like they are today with indexed universal life. And those rising expenses that are baked into both universal life policy chassis are increasing. That's the true trouble with these policies. Every year, you have a birthday. Every year, you get more expensive to insure by the insurance company. So every year, those expenses keep getting bigger and bigger. And it doesn't matter if the market goes up, down, or sideways, you get more expensive to insure. So according to the Wall Street Journal, some customers uh, who bought these basic universal life policies back in the 80s were promised that they could have you know, their policy for life and take income out and all that. But since it's not whole life insurance, but rather it's universal life, they're now exposed to major risks. They're paying thousands of dollars a year just to keep their modest policy in force and not able to take the income out that they thought. Other people have even had to forfeit and surrender and cash out their policy. So, you know, we've discussed all this, guys. I mean, in, in the risks of universal life, indexed universal life. We went through this on episodes 59, 60, and 61. So if you think you might have one of these policies, please listen to those episodes, 59, 60, and 61. This is your money. This is your future we're talking about here. So thank you Wall Street Journal for pointing that out. The final um, news article we'll bring up today and uh, I I think it's going to end on some good news. So uh, I heard an article or heard a report on NPR saying that there's a church paying off each other's debts. So I wanted to save this one for last. I thought the best for last, right? Why not, right? Uh, So when I heard this story, it really brought a smile to my face. It brought some hope to my heart. So I'll leave you with this one. Most people don't realize that the Bible has a lot to say about money and wealth. In fact, According to one estimate, money is mentioned more than 800 times. And Jesus talks more about money than he does about heaven. So, you know, I mean, I guess my question on this article was, would I and would you pitch in to pay off your neighbor's credit card debt? Would you do it if they promised to help you pay your debt off after theirs was paid off? That was the question that one of the, you know, uh, subjects in the story was faced with, Caroline Butcher. Butcher was a a dancer. She had racked up $4,000 in credit card debt after an injury she had. And for years, that credit card debt just sort of hung over her, but her church seemed to be offering her a way out. So she was a part of a Circle of Hope church in Philadelphia that helped collectively pay off hers and other credit card debts. So according to some members of the church, the church has helped its members pay off $100,000 in consumer debt over the last decade. The secret in doing that, they say, lies in treating credit card debt as a community problem rather than just an individual problem. So in 2009, the the church developed a system to help three to five church members at a time pool their money together to pay off credit card debts. They call it the debt annihilation team. (laughs) That's a great small group I could get a part of, right? Uh, They're all following this important principle in the Hebrew Bible called Sabbath. Sabbath is about rest. Definitely, if you've heard that word, it kind of resonates with the word rest. And yes, it's about rest, but it's also about the financial angle as well. Sabbath economics takes inspiration from the Hebrew Bible, which describes uh, the Hebrews fresh out of slavery in Egypt, creating rules for their new society. One of those new rules was instituting the Sabbath, the day of rest, which prevented people from working, trading, making money, whatever, during that day. And, and it was a reminder of that they are not slaves anymore. Uh, In fact, there was a Sabbath year in the Hebrew Bible, uh, the year of Jubilee. Every 49 years, all debts would be wiped clean. It was sort of like a peaceful revolution, right? Built right into the economic code. Pretty cool. Imagine if that was a part of the law of the land here in the United States today. The Hebrews were the original, not your average financial revolutionaries. So in any any case, there are a number of Christian churches today that are putting Sabbath economics into practice. So back to that church in Philadelphia, here's how the debt annihilation team works. First, the church lends the group about $10,000 interest-free. The money completely pays off a couple of cards. Then everybody in that small group pools their money together, and pays everybody else's debt off, right, one by one. The group members pay all of that extra to a single card each month until it's totally paid off. Then they throw it at another debt and another debt until everyone is debt free. Then people make monthly payments back to the church for the money that originally it, it, it loaned out. Ultimately, the credit cards get paid off more quickly. People save hundreds and thousands of dollars in interest. So this Circle of Hope group had a few rules. You, you've got to be a church member. You've got to refrain from using the credit card. And you've got to attend their monthly financial monthly meetings. So nothing in the church's system was legally binding that uh, Lady Caroline Butcher could have walked away from the group. I'm sure that's probably happened in the past. You know, It's all built around trust that she and others won't walk away. So these monthly meetings, these dinners that they would have, uh, made sort of a, an impact on her. And you know they said it was sort of like a change in the way they thought. Uh, you know, you you used to think, or she used to think that the that the debt was her own problem. But when they started to work together, she began to sort of see the debt as a group project that they could be a part of a community that would help the focus move from inward shame, whatever for building up the debt, to something outward where she could help other people as well. So by the time of this episode's airing her group should have paid off all the final member's debt. They'll pay back the church for the money and then use those monies then to help another small group pay off their debts too. So I just thought that was a really cool, creative solution to managing this thing called money. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be about you and yourself and and you and yourself in your own little corner, right? You can use the the power of accountability and community and encouragement to help you achieve your goals. And that's what we love to do here at Not Your Average Financial Podcast. So reach out to us and let us know how we can be of assistance in helping you do the exact same. You know, I wanted to wrap up our episode today and just remind you about an upcoming live episode. Speaking of community, we'd love to hear your voice. On February 1st, Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern time, 10 a.m. Central time, we're gonna be going through a strategy we call the snow bank method for paying off your debt. You can use this method in a, in your individual family or as a community, okay? We're gonna get into some really cool strategies. We're gonna share our computer screens and let you see exactly how the Snowbank method works for paying off the debt and how much more effective it is at helping you achieve financial sanity, which is what we're all about here. So we'll have the wonderful, illustrious Amanda and Brandon Neely on that episode. So come and join us, bring your questions, bring your comments, bring your numbers if you want to, but bring yourself certainly. So you can sign up and RSVP at bit.ly forward slash uh, live N-Y-A-F-P. So that's B-I-T dot L-Y slash L-I-V-E N-Y-A-F-P. And that link is in our show notes. So you can join RSVP and be ready for that episode to um, participate in our live Not Your Average Financial Podcast episode. That's Saturday, February 1st at 11 a.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Central. So thank you all for joining us for another episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future.